Welcome to New City Church. This is Matt Freeman, and we are so thankful you are studying the Word of God with us. Jesus founded New City after our forever home, the New Jerusalem from Revelation 21. He wrote our mission statement to foster, strengthen, and grow an unashamed bride looking for Jesus' return. Let's lean completely on the anointing of the Holy Spirit to teach us all things from 1 John 2.27. God is so eager to teach you the depth of his word. Enjoy the study. We're going through Revelation still, verse by verse, and we're in chapter 11 today, the, the two witnesses. And before we dive into it, I just want to remind everybody that Hey, no matter what you know, we talk about here at the church and what we say, what I say up here, what I write down for you guys in the notes, uh, Acts 17.11 still applies, no, no matter what. I, I need all of you to practice taking it to the Word of God on your own and proving that these things be so. I, I could miss something, you know, I'm not saying I have all of the answers, but especially when it comes to topics like we're going to unpack today with the two witnesses in terms of... I think it's pretty evident if you take in the entire counsel of God's word on who they are, but there's nothing definitive and there's no real major doctrine or anything to build off of this. So just take it with an open mind. And if you have a different opinion or if you see something different, please let me know. Let's pray about it together because I'd love to get confirmation from the Lord at some point. But I think this will be a really fruitful study. And we're still in this parentheses between the sixth and the seventh trumpet. So on your notes, you can skip ahead on a couple of slides. There's a little bit of an echo. Is that good? Can you guys hear me okay? The, the parentheses is between the sixth and the seventh trumpet, and it's five chapters, chapters 10, 11, 12, 13, and 14. And so we're in chapter 11 on the two witnesses. And it's interesting because the Lord's taking it upon himself to show us, again, something else unique that's going on during the tribulation, during this seven-year period that is the greatest time of trouble to ever come upon the world. And what we're going to see in this chapter is that Jesus is still working and striving to bring people to him during this time. And he sets up these two anointed witnesses to go out and to do some pretty supernatural things on his behalf and on behalf of the kingdom. And so the chapter opens up, chapter 11, verse 1, And there was given me a reed like unto a rod, and the angel stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and them that worship therein. Now, a reed, anytime you see a measurement in the Bible, it always speaks of judgment. You see that a lot in Ezekiel, where there's a plumb line drawn or a measuring line drawn. A reed, I found this pretty interesting, that the phrase a reed, not just reed, but a reed, shows up seven times in the Bible, and every one of them has some negative connotation or judgment or significance to it in terms of God judging something. And I find that interesting. So the first one is 1 Kings 14, 15. For the Lord shall smite Israel as a reed is shaken in the water, and he shall root up Israel out of this good land, which he gave to their fathers, and shall scatter them beyond the river. 
because they have made their groves provoking the Lord to anger. So the phrase a reed, again, used in judgment, the Lord is using it as to shake Israel because they are provoking him to anger here in 1 Kings. In Matthew 11, verse 7, And as they departed, Jesus began to say unto the multitudes concerning John, What went ye out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken with the wind? And then Matthew 27, And when they had platted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head, and a reed in his right hand. So they're giving Jesus a reed to mock him, so to speak. Okay, and then the last one I put on here, just an example, I put four of them. Matthew 27, And straightway one of them ran and took a sponge and filled it with vinegar and put it on a reed and gave him to drink. So here you see a reed. What was God doing when Jesus was on the cross? He was judging sin, right? And so here you have a reed, even in that connotation with that whole event. So it's interesting that chapter 11 opens up with a reed, like unto a rod, and then rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and them that worship therein. So when you think about it, measuring the temple, it's yet another reason why we know that the temple will be standing during the seven-year tribulation. It has to be. So in order to measure the temple, there's got to be a temple. The question is, when is it built? What is it? What does it look like? Etc. And as I mentioned, taking a measurement is always associated with judgment, and judgment always starts at the house of God, and that's in 1 Peter 4, verse 17. For the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God, and at first begin at us. What shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? And that's a pretty heavy verse when you think about it. So if judgment begins at the house of God, if you remember Israel was judged and then Babylon, and you can find that pattern all over the Bible that God's people are judged before the nations and before they're drug off into captivity. But if judgment begins at the house of God, how much more so to them that do not obey the gospel of God? And so it's a steeper judgment, obviously, an internal judgment. So we know that the temple must be standing... Uh, Jesus, Paul, John, and Daniel all make reference to it in the Word of God. And one of my favorite verses to prove that is 2 Thessalonians 2, 3, and 4. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, as in the day of the Lord, except there come a falling away first, or a departure, in the Greek, a departing, the rapture, and an apostasy. And that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped so that he is as God, sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. So the son of perdition is a name, a title of the Antichrist, the final world leader. And when he sits into the Holy of Holies, that marks the midpoint of the tribulation. So the seven-year period is broken up into 1,260 days on each side, three and a half years, 42 months, yeah, the Holy Spirit uses these phrases a lot, but this is the midpoint when he goes in to exalt himself above all that is called God. And so to do that, there has to be a temple standing. So the Temple Institute has been preparing to build the temple for a long time. And I tried to show this link many months ago, and we were talking about this in chapter five, I think, or maybe the 70th week of Daniel when we were going through that. But all of the temple artifacts have been constructed. 
They have identified through all the DNA testing now, they've identified descendants of Levi to train as priests, as Levitical priests. They have all the garments ready for them. They have all these young men. And if you're interested in looking at this, go to YouTube and look up the Temple Institute, and they will show videos every few weeks on what they're doing. But once they receive the okay, they think it's about a three to four month process. And they've got the plans. They're literally just waiting on somebody to give them the nod, right? They're just waiting on somebody to say, yes, go ahead and start building that. Now, is that tied to the Antichrist affirming a covenant with them? It could be. It could be the Antichrist is affirming the covenant of the land grant. It could be to allow sacrifices because it does say in Daniel 9 that he will make the oblation cease. In other words, he'll stop the sacrifices when he goes into the Holy of Holies from 2 Thessalonians 3. From that point, he stops the sacrifices. And so at some point, the Jews will restart this. And I think we have it working to pull up this video. There's, I pulled a, It's a short two-minute clip of the Temple Institute. And what I wanted you guys to see was these are ads that they run in Israel to promote building the temple. This is how serious they are taking it, how close they are to getting this off the ground. They think that this is the generation that will do that. They are so committed to it. And if you want to look at where we are in God's timeline, all you have to do is look at where is Israel. That's the, that's the key. They're the timepiece of everything that God does in his word. And so I think we could roll this real quick. Just two minutes.
pretty amazing that this, this advertising and this push, this political push within Israel is ramping up like you've never seen before. And they are so, they are so intent on getting the temple rebuilt. And clearly, as you can see, the temple mound where the Dome of the Rock is, is probably the most hotly contested piece of real estate on planet Earth. I think there's no doubt about that. And there's a reason, because God's name is on that land. And God's name is seated there in Jerusalem. And so this whole thing, will we get to see it rebuild? I don't know. That's a good question. Will, will the Lord tarry long enough where we get to see the rebuilding of it and the sacrifices started? You know, it's not real clear in the Bible when it will happen, but we know that it will at some point, and it's a huge part of the end times. And one of the other things they've been trying to do is get a red heifer. So all the way, I think it's Numbers 19 maybe. Uh, the, the red heifer is needed to atone or anoint the temple once it's rebuilt. And they've been trying for generations now to raise a kosher red heifer and if you follow the Temple Institute on YouTube, they'll give you updates on, hey, we think we had one, and then they'll look at it. Well, the last update they had, they had a red heifer, but it had one gray hair on it, and so it was not kosher. But that's how, again, just how close they are. It's, it's teetering on the edge of falling into place, and all they're waiting on is the okay. Pretty amazing. So if you have interest in that, if you want to keep up with what's going on over there, just look at the Temple Institute. They they publish everything they're trying to do, and it's, it's really fascinating when you lock it into God's Word. So the question is, what temple will be standing during the end times? We know in the millennium there will be a temple as prophesied in the last eight or nine chapters of Ezekiel. Uh, chapters 40 through 43 are the dimensions. Chapter 44 is the future priesthood. Chapter 45 is the future worship. Chapter 46 is the future manner of worship. And three times God declares that he will establish his sanctuary in the midst of Israel forever. Well, obviously that hasn't happened because the temple was destroyed in 70 AD by the Roman legions and there hasn't been one since. And so the Jews have this huge problem in their mind. They don't believe Jesus was the Messiah, but for them, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And so for them, they've had almost... 2,000 years of no remission of sins. And so they are, that's, to give you an idea, that's how desperate they are to get this thing built in their minds. And so three times in Ezekiel, when you look at this, Ezekiel 37, 26, moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them, as in Israel. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them, and I will place them and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in the midst of them forevermore. The very next verse, my tabernacle also shall be with them, yea, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And the heathen shall know that I, the Lord, do sanctify Israel, when my sanctuary shall be in the midst of them forevermore. It sounds like a long time to me. It doesn't sound like a temporary generational thing for 38 years that they wandered in the wilderness. It sounds like God means forever. And that obviously hasn't happened yet, but what is the purpose of it? Look at verse 28. The heathen shall know that I, the Lord, do sanctify Israel. One of the purposes to allow this is that the world will know that God is the true God, and he is the God of Israel. And when he reinstitutes this, 
the whole world has been clamoring to not let this happen. It will be a miraculous event. And actually, you see in Saudi Arabia, in Iran even, in parts of Jordan, Syria, leaders are coming out voicing support for a temple to be rebuilt in Jerusalem. Now, not necessarily on the Dome of the Rock, but for it to be rebuilt. They, they see the future world religion as a combination of Judaism and Islam. And you even see the Pope say that a lot, right, with Krishlam. They, he calls it Krishlam. But you see this kind of throughout the world events of what's going on. So just pay attention to what's happening in modern-day events because it lines up perfectly with the Word of God. So what kind of temple? I find this interesting because twice or three times in God's Word, he talks about raising again the tabernacle of David in the last days. And I just hang with me for a minute. This is total speculation on my part, so take it with a grain of salt. But I find this fascinating. Isaiah 16, 5, And in mercy shall the throne be established, and he shall sit upon it in truth in the tabernacle of David judging and seeking judgment and hasting righteousness. Amos 9.11, In that day will I raise up the tabernacle of David that has fallen and close up the breaches thereof, and I'll raise up his ruins and I will build it as in the days of old. Now again, remember in the Old Testament, that day is kind of always speaking about, in the context, the day of the Lord, the tribulation time, the, the great day of the Lord in that day. So he's going to raise up the tabernacle of David. In Acts 15, verses 14 through 16, you get to the New Testament. Simeon hath declared how God at the first did visit the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And to this agree the words of the prophets as it is written, After this I will return and will build again the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. And I will build again the ruins thereof, and I will set it up. So after this, I will return. After what? After he's taken a people for him out of the Gentiles. So after the church is complete and gone, he will raise again the tabernacle of David. And this is so fascinating because the tabernacle of David was the tabernacle that was used in the wilderness. And you know, it, it roamed around the wilderness, and when Solomon had a, had a temple, when there was a temple built, there was a, a conflict. Well, David was using the tabernacle up until that point still. And what I find fascinating is there's a guy in Lawton, his name is escaping me for the moment, but if you're interested in this, look up the Copper Scroll Project. And it's this guy, you can find him on YouTube, uh, David Bar Barflow or something like that. He's a former firefighter from Lawton. And he has been making trips to Israel, helping the politicians in Israel unlock the copper scroll of Jeremiah. And so before they got drug off to Babylon, before Israel did, Jeremiah hid a lot of the temple artifacts in these caves in Qumran. And he wrote down how to get to it on a copper scroll. And what he did was he wrote it in Hebrew, um, but he wrote it reverse from left to right so that it was punched in the scroll. And then when you'd flip it over, it, was, it would read right to left with raised letters. And Israel's been trying to unlock the, the codes in this for a while and try to figure out where did he put all this stuff? 
Well, they think the tabernacle of David may have been one of the things that he hid. And I think that is amazing. And they haven't got quite gotten the rights to go into certain caves and, and try to dig up this treasure. But at some point they will. And when they do that, there could be some serious treasure in there from the Old Testament that aligns directly with the end times. I think the whole world would agree if they found the tabernacle of David and somehow the Ark of the Covenant or something, that the world would say, oh, we need to let them do this. This is amazing. Let them set it up. So, but the question, one question that I'll just pose to the group and to everybody watching, you know, did God want David to build him a temple originally? And God gave Moses every detail of the tabernacle, but what about a grand temple built with a permanent building material? And when you study this in the scripture, you'll find, I think the answer is no. And again, this is, you search the scriptures and see for yourself. But when you go to 2 Samuel 7, verses 5 through 7, go and tell my servant David. Remember at this point, David has been wanting to build this temple for God. Go and tell my servant David, thus saith the Lord, shalt thou build me an house for me to dwell in? Whereas I have not dwelt in any house since the time that I brought up the children of Israel out of Egypt, even to this day, but have walked in a tent and in a tabernacle. In all the places wherein I have walked with all the children of Israel, spake I a word with any of the tribes battle by battle through the, through the promised land. He was their king. And they looked around and they're, and they're thinking, wow, all these other nations have a king over them, an earthly king who's tall and good-looking. We need one like Saul. Remember, they start clamoring for Saul, and God keeps going, you're not going to like this. I was your king. Why are you looking for Saul to be your king? I'm your king. You don't need to look like the rest of the world. Well, the same thing is true here. The world built these grand temples. They thought the grander their temple, the grander their God. And so they would build these grand temples to Diana, if you're from Greece, or to Dagon, you know, if you're from the Philistines, whatever. They would build these grand temples to try to prove that their God is the God. And God did not want that. He had the total opposite in mind, which why he, is why he gave Moses the tabernacle. It was a humble place of worship with the Lord. And he was walking in the midst of the people in the tabernacle. And so it's my surmise that he never had in mind for them to ever build a temple. And now he allows it, obviously, because it's the desire of their heart, and God oftentimes will give you over to the desire of your heart. But I find this, I find 2 Samuel 7 really telling in my mind of where God's heart was in terms of building a more permanent temple. So next verse, verse 2, but the court which is without the temple leave out and measure it not, for it is given unto the Gentiles and the holy city shall they tread underfoot forty and two months. So the times of the Gentiles, this is an important term from Luke 21, for it is given unto the Gentiles. Okay, in Luke 21, Jesus says, and they shall fall by the edge of the sword and shall be led away captive into all nations, speaking of Israel. And Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. So what he's speaking about there is the times of the Gentiles started with Nebuchadnezzar, and Jerusalem has really been trodden down ever since. Is it trodden down today? Yes. 
The Dome of the Rock is one great example. Jerusalem is trodden down by false pagan religions and the world right now. But Jesus is saying, look what he even says, they shall be led away captive into all nations. And surely after 70 AD, that's exactly what happened. They were led away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem is still trodden down. What he's speaking about is the times of the Gentiles will be fulfilled and culminate with the Antichrist. He will be the ultimate one trotting down the Gentiles in Jerusalem, which is what God says here in verse 2. For it is given unto the Gentiles and the holy city, that's Jerusalem obviously, shall they tread underfoot 40 and 2 months, or again, half of a seven-year period. 42 months, 1260 days. There's always 30 days per month, 360 days per year in God's word. So that half-week designation, again, it shows up all over the Bible, and there's more written about it than any other period of time in the history of man, is this seven-year period. Half of the 70th week of years shows up in Daniel 9.27, Revelation 12.14. 1,260 days is in Revelation 11.3, 12.6. 42 months is in 11.2, 13.5. Time, times, and the dividing of time is another is a Hebrew way of saying three and a half, because times is a dual. So they have plurals in Hebrew and they have duals. What, the only word we have in the English that's a dual is like both. You know, if I, I went to lunch with both of them, that's two people. It's not a plural, it's a dual. So time, times, and the dividing of time is in Daniel 7, Daniel 12, and Revelation 12. Uh, times as a dual is referenced as used on Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 4, verses 16, 23, and 25. So the, that half-week designation is really important, and God uses it all over his word to chronicle the events of what are yet to happen in that time period. So in verse 3, And I will give power unto my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and threescore days clothed in sackcloth. So a lot of people assume that the 1,203 score days, their 1,260-day their ministry, the two witnesses for three and a half years, a lot of people assume it's the back half of the tribulation. And as a good friend of mine would say, not so fast, citizen. So what it could be is that 1,260-day period that they prophesy could be, it could fall and overlap the middle. There's nothing to say that it's locked into one half or the other. I'm not, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying it's not the back half. I'm just saying it's not explicit that it says it is the back half. And I think God gives us a hint of that in a minute. But it could be it's 42 months, but it, it spreads across that middle period of time. We know that they will be in the back half because the Antichrist overcomes them. And we'll see that in a minute. Okay, but the, these are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth. And in the Greek, the sentence structure implies that these are two witnesses you previously know about and that they are the two witnesses. That it's, a, it's an indefinite article that these are two people you should know about. And when they arrive on the scene, it even further implies the Jews will not be surprised that it's these two guys. And so there's a hint on who could they be. The olive tree and candlestick standing before the God of the earth, it's straight out of Zechariah 4 verses 11 through 14, then answered I and said unto him, 
what are these two olive trees upon the right side of the candlestick and upon the left side thereof? And I answered again and said unto him, what be these two olive branches, which through the two golden pipes empty the golden oil out of themselves? And he answered me and said, knowest thou not what these be? And I said, no, my Lord. Then said he, these are the two anointed ones that stand by the Lord of the whole earth. Now, look at the end of verse 4. These are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth. And so you have that linkage there of the Lord of the whole earth, the God of the earth. And again, it's this common theme through all throughout Revelation that God is the creator God. He is the creator of heaven and earth. And I love that his word prophesies that, it declares that, and speaks it, just like in Psalms, the heavens declare the glory of God. Okay, verse 5, if any man will hurt them, fire proceedeth out of their mouth. Now, that's a pretty cool power. Can you imagine? I mean, you could, if anyone has a negative word about you, you could just open up heaven and fire comes down and just consumes them, just boom. Okay, I, I think people would learn real quick, man, I'm not going to talk bad about that guy. Uh, but fire, it's not, don't misunderstand, it's not fire proceedeth out of their mouth, it's by the word of their mouth they command fire. Okay, it's, it's not like they're fire breathing like a dragon, but they're, they're fire is at their command, at their willing disposal for whoever blasphemes the Lord or them. You know, I'm kind of reminded too of, remember Elisha in the Old Testament when those kids were making fun of him and he, and he looked at him and scoffed and a mama bear came out and devoured, I don't remember how many kids it was, 14 kids or something. I probably got the number wrong, but you know, it's kind of that kind of thing. So they have a supernatural ministry, okay? Look at the, their powers. Devoureth their enemies, and if any man will hurt them, he must in this manner be killed. So whatever's done to them, the one that does it will receive that. It's kind of an eye for an eye. You're going back to the ways of the Old Testament, right? Grace is still available, but you're starting to operate under a very different God, a very different manner of how God operates. Not a different God in terms, he's the same yesterday today, and forever, but a different responsibility. You have a different role in this period of time here. Okay, they're protected and their, their persecutors are destroyed until their ministry is complete. Now, the same goes for everybody in this room. You know, did you know that you have a supernatural protection until your ministry is complete? You do. As long as you are walking in what God has for you and he has something else yet to come, you are protected. I'm not saying that you're going to be turned over to an enemy, but... God will supernaturally preserve you as long as you are serving him in a big way. Now, that preservation may not look like what you want it to look like, right? That doesn't mean you won't have an illness take on your body. Okay, you may have a ministry out of that illness that God has prepared for you, that you have to walk through with him. It may be he wants you to, to really get to that loved one before it's too late. So he's not going to let you go home yet because you have a word to speak still. And that's what we're going to see here. These two witnesses have a word for the world, not just somebody, their neighbor, for the planet. They have a word for the world, and it's all about Jesus. And until their ministry is complete, they are supernaturally protected so we'll see later that they are taken out by the Antichrist. So when their ministry is over, 
God allows them to come home. He allows that to happen. So as long as you are still active in the will of God, you are supernaturally preserved. Okay, the immediate first question is, who are these two witnesses? And again, I'll just remind you, Acts 17.11 does apply. So this is not, there's no, there's no hill to die on here. Okay, I promise. But I think it's fascinating that if you search the whole counsel of God's word, he answers most of these questions. And when you get to the New Testament, there were, the Jews were expecting three different people. And you see this with uh, John the Baptist in John chapter 1, verses 19 through 21. And this is the record of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who art thou? And he confessed and denied not, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Art thou Elijah? And he saith, I am not. Art thou that prophet? And he answered, no. So notice they're distinguishing between the Messiah and that prophet. They wouldn't ask him again, right? These are three different people they're looking for. They are looking for Jesus, Elijah, and Moses. That prophet refers to Moses in the Old Testament. So they're looking for the Messiah because of Malachi 3, 1 through 6. And really, I could have listed in parentheses the entire Old Testament. Because they really, he is all over the Old Testament. From Genesis 1, 1 all the way through, he is there. And they're looking for him. They're looking for Elijah because of the last few verses of the entire Old Testament. Malachi 4, 5 through 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. Now, if you, if you know any Orthodox Jewish families, when they celebrate the Passover, and all of them do this in Israel today, when they celebrate the Passover, they leave an extra chair at the table for Elijah to show up because of this verse. They're that insistent that Elijah is coming and we need to be ready for him. In fact, Jesus said had they received him, John the Baptist would have been Elijah, not John the Baptist, which is a very interesting not to get your mind wrapped up in knots here, but it's a very interesting study to think about that, think through that. But they didn't receive him. They rejected him. So John the Baptist was the forerunner. Okay, Moses, that prophet, and this is all in Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 through 19. They're looking for that prophet. Okay, Moses is such an interesting man in the Bible. You know, according to Jewish traditions, the grave of Moses was given into the special custody of Michael, and Michael's the archangel that fights on behalf of God's people, Israel. And they speak of a contest about Moses' body and his soul, mind, will, emotions, at the time of his burial. And I think this is so interesting because it's confirmed in the book of Jude. And God buried the body of Moses, and not on the mountain, but in a valley. So God, if you remember, Moses served the Lord for 120 years. He had 40 years in Egypt. 40 years in Midian after he killed that Egyptian, and then 40 years roaming through the wilderness with the Lord and the children of Israel. So he's 120 years into this ministry, and he does not do what God tells him to do. God said, strike the rock the first time, and this water would pour out, and he did that. The second time the children of Israel needed water, he said, speak to the rock. 
and Moses didn't. He struck it again. And had he spoken to it, it would have modeled the first and second coming of Jesus, where he was first struck, and then he speaks when he returns the next time. But he didn't listen to him. And so he, God says, hey, you cannot go into the promised land. You can see it, but you can't go into it. And so he takes him up on this high mountain, and he overlooks through the Jordan to see it. And this is all in Deuteronomy 34, 5, and 6. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord, and he buried him in a valley in the land of Moab, over against Beth Peor. But no man knoweth of his sepulcher unto this day. So God took it upon himself to bury his servant Moses. Now that alone is unique, if you really think about it. Why would God do that? Why would he take it upon himself to bury the body of Moses somewhere to keep it hidden that no man would know? Well, we get a hint of why in Jude chapter 1, verse 9. Yet Michael the archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses. Now, you don't see this anywhere in the Old Testament. It's not there. Now, you do leave with the question, why did God hide Moses' body? But you don't really know why until you get to Jude, right before Revelation. And look how Michael fights Satan. Durst not bring against him a railing accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke thee. So Michael knows where the authority is. The authority is in Jesus. So he doesn't take on Satan, and he doesn't bring a railing accusation against him. He doesn't try to tear him down, right, with accusations. Jesus said Satan is an accuser of the brethren. So if, don't get into the practice of accusing people. That's, that comes straight from the devil himself. But I think it's interesting that God took Moses out. He didn't listen to him. He buries his body. Then Michael and Satan have a war over this body. Now, why would they do that? My suspicion is it's because Moses has a very special plan yet to be fulfilled in God's role in God's kingdom, and that's being one of the two witnesses. So when you look at the, the Jewish, there are two Jewish ministries in the Old Testament that were incomplete. Now, Enoch, you could argue Enoch's ministry was incomplete, but he was raptured, and he was not Jew. He was not a Jewish man. Uh, the Jewish, Jewish people didn't start until Abraham. So Enoch was not a Jew, despite you know, what they say. Uh, Moses, in Numbers 20 and Deuteronomy 3, his, his ministry was incomplete. It wasn't finished. Elijah, in 1 Kings 17 and 19 and 2 Kings 2, it's interesting as a side note why Elijah's ministry was incomplete. He still, God still had a plan for him, but he hides in this cave, and pride fills his heart, and he says, Lord, I'm the only guy left. I'm it. There's nobody else that stands for you. I am the only prophet that's left. And little did he know or did he recognize that there were a whole lot of prophets in Jerusalem still battling and raging with him, but he felt like pride crept in. I'm the only one serving you, God. What is going on? And the Lord from that point says, okay, that's it. Your time's up. Sorry, there's too much pride there. I'm going to pass your mantle on to Elisha. Get ready to come home. These two guys were present all over the New Testament at the Mount Transfiguration in Matthew 17, verse 3. And behold, there appeared unto them Moses and Elijah talking with him. The him is Jesus. So you get a hint in 1 Peter 1 and 2 Peter 1 that they are talking about the second coming of Christ, which is interesting. And it could be Jesus and Moses and Elijah were talking about 
what they are yet to do as the two witnesses. It's just a suspicion, but I, I think if you read First Peter and Second Peter there, you'll find they were, they were communicating about something that's yet to come with Jesus. Okay, the Mount of Transfiguration, could it have been the same spot that Moses was buried and Elijah was taken? So this is interesting. Moses was buried somewhere near the foot of Mount Pisgah. And Moses went up from the plains of Moab unto the mountain of Nebo in the top of Pisgah that is over against Jericho. And the Lord showed him all the land of Gilead unto Dan and all of Naphtali and the land of Ephraim and Manasseh and all the land of Judah unto the utmost sea and the south and the plain of the valley of Jericho and the city of palm trees unto Zoar. Now, I don't know how you get to the top of Mount Nebo and see all of that, but somehow the Lord showed it to him. Uh, he's looking at the whole holy land. It's amazing. And the Lord said unto him, This is the land which I swear unto Abraham, unto Isaac, and unto Jacob, saying, I will give it unto thy seed. I have caused thee to see it with thine eyes, but thou shalt not go over thither. Elijah was taken up by the, by the whirlwind in the valley at the foot of Mount Pisgah. And that's in, uh, you can go back in Kings and look at that. But Mark 9.30, when they're at the Mount Transfiguration, they departed thence, so after the Transfiguration, and they passed through Galilee, and he would not that any man should know it. Okay, so if they were at the Mount Transfiguration, it couldn't have been in Galilee, because then they wouldn't have walked to go pass through it. So just kind of think about that. I think they were east of the Jordan on top of this mountain, uh, Mount Nebo, and Elijah was taken up there, Moses was buried there, the Transfiguration is there, and they're talking about the second arrival of Jesus. So in Revelation 11:5, if any man will hurt them, fire proceedeth out of their mouth and devoureth their enemies. And if any man hurt them, he must in this manner be killed. They have power to shut heaven that it rain not in the days of their prophecy and have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to smite the earth with all plagues as often as they will. So there's four distinct powers here these two witnesses have. They can have fire from heaven, they shut heaven from raining, they, water, they can turn water to blood and all manner of plagues. And to me, those four attributes remind me a lot of Elijah and Moses because they, they did both of those things in the Old Testament. Elijah calls fire from heaven in 1 Kings 18 and 2 Kings 1. He also shut heaven from raining in 1 Kings 1, or 17, I'm sorry, but you don't learn that he did it for three and a half years until you get to James 5 and Luke 4. So there's, there's an interesting timeline there. Uh, Moses turns water to blood in Exodus 7, and then obviously the whole 10 plagues of Egypt, Exodus 8 through 12, he calls down the lice, the locusts, the hell from heaven, the fire, etc., the darkness. And so I think if you look at their attributes on what they're doing, they sure do seem to emulate what Moses and Elijah did in the Old Testament. So I think that if you, if you look at it hard all over the, the, the entire council of God's word, you could probably take a pretty educated guess that it's these two guys. Again, it's not concrete. It's not, a like I said, a hill to die on necessarily, but they are expecting Elijah at some point. And when will that point be? God promises that in his word in Malachi 4. Okay, in the next verse. And when they shall have finished their testimony, okay, so notice that, when they have finished. So when their word, their testimony for the Lord is complete, 
When it's complete, God allows them to go home. The beast that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit shall make war against them and shall overcome them and kill them. So the word overcome here in verse 7 is nikeo. And it's to conquer, to carry off the victory, to come off victorious. Now here's another clue that the church is not here during this time. Matthew 16, verses 17 and 18. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That word prevail, is, it's the same thing, to overcome, to be strong to another's detriment. And so here Jesus, the creator of the universe, is saying, I'm going to build my church upon this rock. He's pointing to himself, not to Peter. He's saying upon this rock. Jesus is the rock all throughout the scripture. And the gates of hell will not overcome it, will not prevail against it. So the church will not be overtaken by the gates of hell. Well, if you remember through the trumpets, I think we've seen a lot of gates of hell opening uh, from the bottomless pit, these these fallen entities, the Antichrist coming out of it, etc. But here in Revelation 11, you have what on the surface could seem like a contradiction, but it's not. When you really make the separation of the church, the Jews, and then the Gentiles, what's going on with those three groups of, of people. So the two witnesses, they're overcome by the Antichrist. So they can't be part of the church. They have to be Jewish or Old Testament saints. Okay, verse 8, and their dead bodies shall lie in the street of that great city, the, the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. Okay, that great city, the great city. Jerusalem is likened to Sodom in Isaiah 1, 3, Jeremiah 23, and Deuteronomy 32. It's also likened to Egypt in Ezekiel 23. When you think about this, it's Sodom for immortal, immorality and Egypt for idolatry, but it's also Egypt because they were the ones persecuting God's people, and Jerusalem has done nothing but stone the prophets, God's people, every time they're sent to them, so it's kind of the same analogy there. Okay, so verse 9, and they of the people and kindreds and tongues and nations shall see their dead bodies three days and a half. Okay, this isn't a localized issue, this isn't just the people of Jerusalem will see their dead bodies. Look what God says. The people and kindreds and tongues and nations shall see their dead bodies. Three and a half days. Interesting time frame. Three and a half days. Uh, and shall not suffer their dead bodies to be put into graves. So three and a half days. You know, Jesus was in the tomb three days. Uh, Jonah was in the well for three days, but and Jesus likens it to him. Everyone else that's dead that is resurrected is always beyond three days because Jesus was our first fruits. So they have to lay in the streets for three and a half days. So the world wants to make an example of these two sent from God. When you think about it, here they are torturing the, uh, the world for God's behalf and for his word and ministering to people and spreading the word of Jesus. And the world wants nothing more than to make an example of them and finally, once they take these two guys out, they let them lie dead in the street so that the whole world can see that, hey, 
this Antichrist is the real, the real God here, not who these two guys were claiming. But, and they that dwell upon the earth shall rejoice over them. So the whole world, this is the only place in Revelation where the world celebrates. And they celebrate the death of these two guys and make merry and shall send gifts one to another. They even exchange gifts over this. You know, they are so overjoyed that finally these guys that could open heavens and rain fire down on us are finally taken out. But they give gifts one to another because these two prophets, there's a key, the prophets. It's not just two witnesses. These two witnesses are prophets. Tormented them that dwelt on the earth. And I think it's fascinating that they celebrate, they get excited. Finally, these two troublemakers are, are gone and they are just overwhelmed with joy. It's the only place you see them celebrate. Okay, verse 11. And after three days and a half, the spirit of life from God entered into them. And they stood upon their feet, and great fear fell upon them which saw them. I can imagine. Can you imagine what the world is going to see when these two guys stand on their feet after being dead for three and a half days in the streets of Jerusalem? And the whole world, you can just see CNN and MSNBC and Fox and all these stations covering this exclusive story that these two guys are dead. And they, the report, there's probably going to be reporters standing on the sidewalk still talking about their bodies laying there. And these guys are just going to stand up, and then they're going to look up to heaven and be taken home in a whirlwind? I mean, I think at that point I would think very closely on what side I'm choosing. I there's got to be some logic left in somebody at this point to go, okay, wow, I'm really missing something here because uh, these guys have been dead for three and a half days. We've kicked their bodies. We've hung them upside down by their feet. We've, we've maybe burned them, their bodies in the streets, and here they are standing up, and God is calling them home. And they, as in the world, heard a great voice from heaven saying unto them, come up hither, and they ascended up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies beheld them. Uh, that's going to be quite a sight. That, that clip will go viral on <laughs> TikTok, whatever. I don't know what social media is going to be around at then, but there's probably a 666 app, too, that it'll be on. <laughs> but the same hour was there a great earthquake, and the tenth part of the city fell, and in the earthquake were slain of men 7,000. And the remnant were affrightened and gave glory to the God of heaven. So here, the remnant of Israel, the remnant of God's people, truly start to understand what it means to fear the Lord. Okay, Jesus said, fear the one that can't kill the body, but fear the one that can cast your spirit into hell. That's who you fear, not man. It doesn't matter what man does to you. Uh, the Lord is greater than any man, and greater is he that lives in you than he that's in the world. And the remnant, so Israel is seeing this. They probably get news somehow that, hey, these two witnesses have been resurrected. They've been taken home just in the same manner as Elijah. Elijah was caught up into a whirlwind. These guys are going to be caught up into a whirlwind. And they're frightened. And, and through what you need to recognize is through the fear of the Lord, they give glory to him. And the fear of the Lord, if you do a study on the fear of the Lord, just type it in the Blue Letter Bible, the fear of the Lord, and look at every attribute that comes from the fear of the Lord. 
it's the beginning of wisdom, it's the beginning of knowledge, it's the beginning of understanding, it's the beginning of all things, begins with the fear that the Lord really is who he says he is. And the world is probably going to be pretty terrified themselves at this point. Okay, the second woe is past in verse 14. And behold, the third woe cometh quickly. So the fifth trumpet was the first woe, the sixth trumpet, the second woe, the third woe is coming. So I think God just put this in verse 14 to give you a hint of maybe where this is falling of when they're resurrected and taken home is probably somewhere between the fifth and the sixth trumpet, or I'm sorry, the sixth and the seventh trumpet between that that interlude. So I don't know, it's not really clear in God's word of where those group, three groups of seven fall. Uh, we know that the last bowl will be poured out on the air. It's the last judgment in the seven-year period, so it's very close to the end. But these others, the timing in between of them is not real crystal clear. So that's something I've still been praying about for a long time, that the Holy Spirit would teach me and show me something on the timing of some of this, of where it falls during that seven-year period. And the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven, saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Now, one quick side note on verse 13, the 7,000, when you go back to Elijah, and he's saying this, God says, Have I not preserved 7,000 of my people? Well, here 7,000 are falling. So there's even a link there of the number of 7,000. But let me read that again, verse 15. And there were great voices in heaven saying, this is probably, we're amongst these voices at this point, the church. The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever, the kingdom. So the kingdoms of the world will become the millennial kingdom. It will happen. Just assuredly, as God fulfilled every promise of Jesus arriving the first time, literally, he will fulfill every promise of his second arrival, literally. Jesus, Jesus was to show up to be crucified, to be spit on. His beard was torn out. He was betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. He rode in on a donkey. They would cast lots for his garments. They even, in Isaiah 53, you can even read about, within the Hebrew text, who was at the foot of the cross, there's three Marys, and there were three Marys. When you get into that, he fulfilled all of it literally. It's, it wasn't an allegory. It wasn't something that God kind of told you, maybe this is what's going to happen, but it really means this. So when you look at the future that God has for us, you've got to look at it. How did God interpret it and fulfill it previously? He's going to do it the same way, literally. There will be a kingdom forever. Search the term forever in the Bible, and I think God means exactly what he says, which is forever. It's not a, it's not a three-year, right? It's not a three-year reign. It's not a 32 years when he walked the earth in the flesh. It's not a allegory to mean, well, he's just going to rule and reign in your hearts, and this is the best it will ever get is what we've got right now. Well, in my mind, this is pretty horrible place to live. I mean, Children are being trafficked. People are being murdered. Wars are raging all over the planet. Uh, God's word is being persecuted almost worse now than it ever has been in the last 1,900 years. And, you're, and this is the best we have to look forward to. I just, 
I choose to hold on to the hope that God means exactly what he says or else he wouldn't have written it down. And God, he wrote it down because he's a man of his word. If he wasn't a man of his word, he wouldn't have written it down. And you have to hold on to the promise that there are eight times as many verses for what he's going to do the next time than what he did the first time. And the entire Bible speaks of it. And so you've got to get to a point where you are reading the word of God and taking it to him for the anointing that we all have in this room to teach us all things and to see the word exactly for what he is saying. So in the, to close out this chapter in chapter 11, and the four and 20 elders, that's us. We are the 24 elders, if you remember from chapters four and five, which sat before God on their seats or thrones, fell upon their faces and worshiped God. I am so glad the Lord gives us an opportunity to watch what's going on during this time, to see his miraculous hand move. I've, I've often wished I had a, a YouTube clip or something of what went on in Egypt. You know, can you imagine getting to see all of that, to see God really stand up and fight for his people? He's going to stand up and fight for his people during this seven-year period, and we get to view it from heaven. We're going to fall on, his, on our faces and worship him and get to glory in what exactly he is doing on the earth. And what's so cool is I, I bet there will be some urgency of, I know we're about to ride down with you, Jesus. I can't wait for that moment. We're so close. We're almost to Revelation 19. We're almost there. We're almost there. And the anticipation of that moment of the king stepping back into his creation to make it all right again, that's going to be an anticipation that will just, I think it's going to blow our minds when we're in heaven. I can't wait. So saying, we give thee thanks, O Lord God Almighty, which art and was and art to come. So the Lord, speaking of Jesus, he was, he is, and he is to come. Because thou hast taken to thee thy great power and hast reigned. And the nations were angry, and thy wrath is come, and the time of the dead, that they should be judged, and that thou shouldest give reward unto thy servants, the prophets, and to the saints, and them that fear thy name, small and great, and shouldst destroy them which destroy the earth. Again, the creation is groaning to be redeemed. And these people, these people are just angry at God. They're angry at him. It's amazing to me still, after even this happens and he resurrects the two witnesses, that they are nothing but angry at God for it. They don't humble themselves. There's no humility. There's no submission. There's no okay, Lord, I'm sorry, I missed it. They are nothing but angry towards God. And the temple of God was opened in heaven, and there was seen in his temple the ark of his testament. And there were lightnings and voices and thunderings and an earthquake and great hell. So again, the ark of his testament, it's, it's his covenant with us, the ark of the covenant. It's a coveted relationship that we have with God. It's not, yes, there are commandments to be in that covenant, but it's, the, it's who is God in those 10 coveted statements from the Lord. You don't need to steal because I'm your provider. You know, every one of those, again, is you don't need to do this because I will take care of it for you. Don't try to step into a role that I didn't have for you. So his reward is with him. You know, I love to close with a call for God's people every week and 
I, was, I felt very led yesterday to add this into the, back into the slides as a reminder. So in verse 18, and that thou shouldest give reward unto thy servants, the prophets, and to the saints. Again, this whole theme of rewards and inheritance with God, it's prevalent all throughout the Bible. And one of the greatest set of verses on it is 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 15. According to the grace of God, which is given unto me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another buildeth thereon. But let every man take heed how he buildeth thereupon. For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man build upon this foundation, so get the picture. The foundation that's laid is Jesus. He's the cornerstone. He's the rock. And once you step into the relationship with him, you have an opportunity to build upon that foundation something for the kingdom. That's the, that's the key. What are you building your life on? What are you doing with your time? What are you doing with your resources? What are you doing in your prayer life? You know, what are you doing to witness to someone? What are you doing to serve him? Again, the commandments, right? Thou shall not take thy Lord, the Lord thy God's name in vain. And to take his name in vain, he even puts a, a penalty on that. He will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Taking his name in vain has to mean taking on the name of the king and doing nothing with it. It's all about ambassadorship. It's all about how do you live once you're saved. It's all about what do you do in the spirit, not in the flesh. It has nothing to do with your vocabulary. It has nothing to do with, oh, I, I said a cuss word. It's more than that, or else it wouldn't have been in the 10 greatest things you need to do for the Lord. So it's don't take his name and squander it. Don't do something to spoil your ambassadorship. Now, when you take on his name and you build on the foundation, there are two groups of things, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble. So there's six items, two groups. One is combustible, one is not combustible. Okay, the wood, hay, stubble is combustible. Those are things you do in the flesh. The gold, silver, precious stones, those are incombustible. They can withstand fire. Those are things you do in the spirit for God's kingdom. Every man's work shall be made manifest for the day shall declare it because it shall be revealed by fire. And the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. But here's the key phrase in the end. But he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. In other words, you got into the relationship with Jesus, and even if you did nothing with it your entire life, and everything you did was wood, hay, stubble, and burnt away, whose foundation are you still on? You're on the foundation that is the cornerstone. You are on Jesus. You are saved. You're going to be saved, yet so, as by fire. Now, you may go into heaven as a refugee, you know, so to speak, uh, but you are saved. You have a place in heaven. The gold, silver, precious stones, this is what you did for the kingdom, and you get a chance to present Jesus with a gift, a gift of, I spent some time or something in my life serving you, and I'm throwing it back at your feet because it all goes to you. And what I, my encouragement for each of you is you don't want to show up to the party empty-handed, right? You don't want to show up with, man, I forgot the birthday gift. Nothing's more embarrassing than that. So don't do that. When we get there, all of us should have gifts. So 
live your life for the Lord, and it starts by walking into his word and learning it day in and day out. That's how it starts. And everything else will just shed off of you. Everything. Anything you're holding on to that you haven't laid at his feet, he will shed it off of you. And so to build your faith, Hebrews 11.1, 1, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And why is it important in Hebrews 11.6? For without faith, it is impossible to please him. So you can't please him unless you have faith. So you need to know how to get it. And that's Romans 10.17, for faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. So you've got to be in God's word to build your faith. And once you're building your faith, God will easily show you, I want you to get rid of this. I want you to do this now. I need you to submit here. I need you to walk into this calling, whatever it is. But you've got to give him space and time to answer. And you've got to not just fill yourself with the Holy Spirit when you're saved, but in the Greek, there's actually two types of filling. There's the indwelling that happens when you're saved. And then there's the overflowing that happens when you're living for him. So you allow the spirit to overflow out of your very being. So I hope each of you will take that challenge serious and just get into God's word and become students of the word and not just hearers thereof. So if you do not know Jesus, if you're here and you want to know what that's about, to get on that foundation so you too can stand before the Lord and be excited. These are, it's an exciting time when we get to that point. It's not a seat of judgment like it's a negative connotation. It's a seat of rewards. It's like walking into your dad's you know, living room or something and him, and him having a gift ready for you. That's what it's about. It's not about a place of, there's not gonna be ridicule. There's not a place in Hebrews, he says, he not only forgives, he forgets. So you're not gonna be reminded of, hey, you really, you blew it here and I'm gonna hold it over your head for eternity. It's a, this is what you did for me and let's celebrate. Okay, that's what it's about. So if you wanna to get to that point and have a relationship with the Lord, it's Romans 10, 9, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. It's that simple. You've got to confess the, the Lord Jesus. And once you confess and believe in your heart, you are saved. So if you need help with that, if you're watching this online, if you need help with it, please reach out to us. Get alone in your prayer closet and do this. And I'll, I'll say one more thing about building in your relationship with the Lord. There's a, there's a practice that I would encourage all of you to do if you are holding on to something or if you're looking for an answer in your life about something, then I would encourage you to get a blank sheet of paper and write it down, just like Hezekiah did when the Assyrian army was surrounding him. He took that paper, he wrote it down, and he took it before the Lord and laid it at his feet. And he just said, Lord, I don't know what to do with this, but you do. And he took, he took time. So he got alone with the Lord. He postured himself in a, in a place of humility. He got on his knees. He worshiped God and sought a specific answer written out about a specific problem. And so if you've got something, I would just encourage you to do that. We had a, I'll tell one quick story. It's like 60 seconds and we'll wrap up in prayer. The, we had a dear friend come stay with us and she's going through some issues, some heavy, heavy issues. And she came and stayed with us a couple weekends ago. And I encouraged her to do this. And she had seven questions for God. And she went up to our daughter's bedroom and shut the door 
and spent, I think it was about 90 minutes, maybe an hour, hour and a half with the Lord, seeking specifically on these questions. And her faith's really been taking off the last five years. And she came downstairs utterly shaking because she came down with seven pages of handwritten notes from God on exactly what to do and when to do it. She just had to take it to the counselor, Isaiah 9, 6. He's the counselor. And so she gave him time to sit with her and to to one-on-one have a conversation about these issues. So if you haven't ever done that, I would just encourage you to do it. If there's something in your life going on, get alone with the Lord and seek him and let him answer what he is calling you to do. So if you need help with that, hey, we are here. We'll pray with you. Uh, Reach out to me. I'll pray with you, whatever. If there's anybody here that has an issue, just don't go at it alone. Go at it with Jesus. That's the key. So if you're not, if you're, if you're watching online and you need prayer, or if you need salvation questions, reach out to us. There's our email address. And with that, I'll, I'll close us out in prayer. Lord, we thank you so much again for what you're doing in the hearts and minds of this community and these families. God, I cannot help but just step back and, and sit in awe at watching your spirit move when we give you space and time to react and to lead, and we follow you step by step through this journey. So we pray that you continue to bless the study of Revelation as we dive into chapter 12 next week. We pray that, God, you would let this be a fruitful study that blesses all of those that hear it and all of those that embark on their own study. Let the the people all over the world that are watching this, let them be refreshed and renewed by getting the depth of your word that maybe they don't have access to where they are in the world right now. And let them learn to lean on your anointing, which is the Holy Spirit, to teach them everything. So we thank you, God, for this time together. Bless all of these families as we go out this week and be with us in the weeks ahead, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.